This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. Hi, I'm Mike Bush. I'm Paul New. And I'm Colleen Sterling. Welcome to Ask the AMPs from AOPA. On Ask the AMPs, we take your toughest maintenance questions and uh, try to solve them. So if you have a question, reach out to us at podcasts at aopa.org. And if you like the show, make sure to follow or subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you'd like to get on our email list uh, for our monthly newsletter and uh, weekly maintenance stories, the easiest way is to text the word SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777, and our uh, little email bot will ask you for your email and add you to the list. Once again, uh, text the word SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777 to put yourself on our list. So I, I got an email a few days ago from the owner of, uh, I, I believe it was the Citabria. And he said that he was having issues starting the airplane. It was getting really hard to start. So he, he took it to his mechanic. And his mechanic diagnosed it as a leaky primer and said something about replacing the primer. Maybe he just meant replacing the O-rings in the primer. I'm not sure. But in any case, he got the airplane back out of the shop and it turned out it was just as hard to start. So he puts it back in the shop and the mechanic adjusts the rigging of the mixture control or something. Gets it back out of the shop. It's just as hard to start. Now it's back in the shop and the mechanic has removed the carburetor and sent it out for overhaul. Oh goodness. So the, <laughs> he says, he says, but he gave me an invoice for the, for the, the primer work and the mixture control work. Do I really have to pay for it? It didn't fix the problem. And I said, yeah, you really have to pay for it because he did the work and he, you know, bought the parts and, when you have aircraft maintenance done in general, it's time materials you're paying for for labor and for parts, not a defined outcome. I said there are some exceptions to that. For example, if you have your engine major overhaul, the shop will probably give you a flat rate bid on it. Or when you have an annual inspection done, you'll typically get a flat rate for the inspection. But most of the time, it's time materials. And so, yes, you're, you're, you're obligated to pay for it, even though it didn't fix the problem. So he said, okay. He said, thank you for the legal advice. 
<laughs> but let me <laughs> let me ask the question differently. Is it ethical for the mechanic to have done that work when he wasn't real what obviously wasn't really sure what was wrong? And I said, well, let me ask you a question. If you go to your doctor and complain that you're you're having migraine headaches and the doctor gives you a prescription and says see if this helps and you <laughs> try the prescription and it doesn't make the migraines go away you go back to the doctor and she says oh well why don't, we'll try this i'll let me give you another prescription i said is that ethical <laughs> or, or 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 should you know should the doc should the doctor lose her license because she didn't diagnose you properly the first time the the satabra owner didn't happen to be a doctor did he no oh but, okay. but anyway it would have been so, so much better so, <laughs> so this discussion continued and he said yeah but you know the human body's really complicated and airplanes are really simple oh. and and i i can accept that the doctor doesn't can't give me a a perfect diagnosis every time but i have a really hard time that my mechanic can't because that's a whole lot simpler and, you know, and I said, well, you know, doctors spend a lot of time in med school learning differential diagnosis and mechanics don't. Don't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so anyway, this discussion is continuing. And I just thought it was kind of interesting that I, I, I you ever run into that sort of thing, Paul? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a pretty common thing in a shop because you have to do troubleshooting. Now, I, I kind of get it. This may not have been the best troubleshooting, I think it would have been nice if it had been proposed to the owner, we're going to do these things to troubleshoot the problem. It's hard to start, which can be caused by lack of air, lack of fuel, or lack of spark, or too much air and not enough fuel by comparison. I mean, you come up with all the reasons and then start attacking one by one to eliminate what they are, differential troubleshooting, but just replacing parts so it's not the way to go. I don't know how he came up with the the leaky primer, because if I were doing that, the easiest thing to do would have been just to cap it off. Because if you leave a primer open, the engine runs terrible. It'll usually start. Uh, but he could have just capped off the line to see if that would work. That would have been real simple. And then working your way down, but pulling the carburetor because it doesn't start well, that's a bigger chunk. And I don't think other troubleshooting right. has been done yet, like well, checking and, and, the mags and things. And, and you know, when he said the carburetor, my first thought was, well, has has anybody checked the the RPM rise? And has anybody tried adjusting right. the, the needle valve uh, that, that for, right. the, for, for the uh, idle mixture and stuff? Because w why pull the carburetor before you've done? But, you know, my... My experience, Paul, and and I, you know, I don't want to get anybody mad at me, but <laughs> my, my my experience is that that most mechanics aren't terribly good at at doing what's called differential diagnosis in in medicine. That that there's a lot of parts changing done. Yes, uh, as opposed to collecting data, which is really how. how you know, you want you want to diagnose by collecting data, not by making guesses. If you can, if you can yeah. avoid it, because the guesses are guesses. 
Our first question is from Adam, who's hoping his morning sickness isn't terminal. Go ahead, Adam. Good to have you on. Hello, everyone. Uh, I use a friend's airplane. It's a 1977 uh, Piper Warrior. It's got a, a O320 in it, and it's uh, pretty close to TBO. It's about 1,950 hours. However, the engine doesn't burn any oil, and it runs really well. And recently, after a really long trip, we had pretty severe morning sickness. So uh, it was running great. Never had uh, It didn't have morning sickness when I was on the long trip with it. I went out to start it, and I couldn't get the RPMs above 1,000. Um, it was running really, really rough. I suspected it was morning sickness, so I maybe ran the engine for a minute, and I turned it off, opened up the cowl, and the, let's see, the right rear cylinder was cold, and so was the exhaust, and the front left cylinder was cold, and so was the exhaust. And so I let it sit for a little bit to, to heat soak, started it up, it was running just a little bit better, and then, uh, but it, it was still running pretty rough, and so I shut it off, felt the same cylinders. Now, this time, just the, the right rear cylinder was was cold, and so was the exhaust. So then I uh, we towed it. We faced it away from the wind. I let it heat soak for probably 15 minutes, went out there and started it up again for the third time. And uh, after just, just a little bit of roughness, it was running fine. I let it idle. I, I leaned it out really well uh, on the ground, and... Um, I felt confident enough to take off with the airplane since um, it seemed like it was morning sickness. And, you know, after it warmed up, it seemed like the problem went away. So I, we took off, or I, sorry, I took off and uh, I flew without an issue. And then when, uh, when we got home, the owner started it up and we had pretty severe morning sickness again, but now it seemed like it has gone away. And so uh, I was talking with the owner about it and he was thinking that um, since it's a high time, it might be time to just, overhaul the to, uh, to do a top overhaul on the airplane or sorry on the engine and uh to try to fix the problem i told him that i'd contact you guys with your guys's opinion and and uh he, he knew what the problem was uh the mechanic said it was the same thing with uh lead lead buildup on the valve stems and so i told him i'd ask you guys and and here we are but we don't have any problems with it right now it's it's running okay it's, oh, okay is a pretty low standard. Well, sorry. No, it's running well. We don't have morning sickness anymore. How about that? Yeah. It does vibrate a little bit, but it doesn't burn more than a quart of oil in every probably 10 hours, I'd say. Yeah, the thing about morning sickness, that's your indicator, but it, it, it doesn't go. The problem is still there. It's just not manifesting itself. You have two options, and, and the top overhaul is not one of them. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Well, one option is to do a wobble test. And the other option is just to assume it's bad and and uh, do what Paul would do, I think, which is pull, pull, you know, drop all the valves into the cylinders and and ream out all the valve guides and just on general principles. And I think if you're if you're good, you can actually drop the valve stem out the lower spark plug hole and and clean it up a, with a little emery cloth too. Paul did didn't react to that, so maybe he's not that good. No. <laughs> I've never thought about cleaning the valve stem. I never worried about the valve stem. It's always I, the guide. Um, There's actually a good video of somebody do, doing this, uh, doing doing the the whole rope trick thing and so on, and it included yeah. drop dropping the valve stem out the bottom spark plug hole and well, that'd cleaning, be, cleaning it up. The problem bit. is that would I would have to drop the 
valve stem out the spark plug hole that either my camera is in or my mechanical fingers are in, I don't know that I could do that. Because <laughs> I'm not. Well, ta- I, I'm, I'm I not told you you weren't. I told you you weren't that good. <laughs> I believe it. So I would. <clears throat> we used you to. Have, do this. You have. You have not enough fingers, or do you have not enough holes? Well, yeah. There's, <laughs> there's, these engines, unfortunately, only have two spark plugs. So one one hole gets the mechanical finger, and the other hole gets the gets the borescope, and that doesn't leave any place left for this for the valve stem to come out. Now, if you drop the exhaust which I would not recommend uh, because now you've opened up for even more problems. Yeah, you do the rope trick. We used to do this, gosh, probably once or twice a month on a group of Cherokee sixes that a local guy was using as uh, freight haulers. He had four and he flew a lot in all these airplanes. And and it was a requirement because it's a 400 hour service bulletin. Now it's 200 hours. So if you want to look up the, the details, Service Bulletin 388, just going by memory. And the uh, as Mike said, there is the wobble test, but you can just save the time and just get the reamer. And you're not going to cut any metal out of the guides. All you're doing, because you're using the proper size reamer, well, not le- an le- oversized. Well, lead is a metal, but... Well, <laughs> you, you're... <laughs> Yeah, the the metal. You're not going to cut any metal at Lycoming put there. That's right. The (laughs) the original properly installed metal will still be there. You're just creating. You're eliminating the uh, the infiltrated metal, if we will. But be sure they do one cylinder at a time, because uh, I had bless his heart. One of our mechanics was trying to make this go quicker, so he he undid all six of the valves and the rockers all at the same time and. Something got lodged somewhere where it shouldn't, and it broke uh, one of the lifters, lifter bodies. So then we had to pull the engine. That was a bad day. That so is day. the problem the buildup on the valve stem or on the valve guide or both? It's mostly the guide, but both. So do you use the dental floss trick, Paul? Yeah, I use a, a valve guide reamer, just a standard reamer. Any Anybody that works on cylinders will have it. Check the manual, but actually, memories- actually McFarland has special cleanout reamers that are designed Ooh. for this. Yeah. McFarland, one of your new best friends. Yeah, so cleanout reamer, it's a 0.499 diameter reamer. Dad used to use a 0.500 reamer um, just because valves stuck all the time. <laughs> Not the thing to do. Use the proper reamer if you're going to use a reamer. Okay. But yeah, that'll take care of it. But I would definitely, while you've got the rockers off to do this, take a look at those push rods and make sure something didn't get bent and look yeah. at the uh, when, top when of you the pistons. Flying. Yeah, because you, you've flown it a couple of times and I would not fly it again at this point until you yeah. get this done. Okay. Yeah, when you say look at the top of the pistons, you're looking for valve strike signatures. Which, which would either be a circle if it's a parallel valve engine or a smile if it's an angle valve engine. Yeah, this will be a circle, yeah. Okay, so push rods, top of the engines, and, or top of the pistons, and okay. Yeah, yeah, just look it all over. But there's no reason to pull the cylinders off. There's nothing you can do with the cylinders off, in this case, that you can't also do with the cylinders on the engine, and that saves a lot of risk. All right. Adam, thanks for calling. We enjoyed the question.
Yes. Thanks for your, uh, for your guys' expertise. Have a good one. Yeah, you too. All right. Bye. Our next question is from Kevin, who is wondering why his POH is lying to him. Go ahead, Kevin. <laughs> Thank you. So thanks for taking my call. Um, we really enjoy the podcast here. Um, all of my airports, uh, everybody at my airport refers to you as the Click Clack and Colleen show now. So, uh, so you've really, you're, you've moved up in our estimation. Oh, I love it. At least Colleen rates an actual name. That's a, that's a caper. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, um, but during, um, for new aircraft owners, it's spectacular. So thank you. Um, I have a Cessna uh, R172K. It's a 172XP. This is the uh, glorified 172 with the Continental IO360 six-cylinder and adjustable pitch prop. Uh, I was one of the brave slash stupid pilots that bought and tried to refurbish a plane during COVID. Uh, we redid virtually everything, new glass panel, engine monitor, new paint, new interior, even put a BRS in. It has uh, 300 hours on a factory reman engine. So I now own the most overinvested 172 in existence. <laughs> um, it, it runs great, but it is inexplicably slow. And I'm the worst possible owner being an engineer. So um, <laughs> the, the book says we have a cruise uh, true airspeed of 131 knots. Test flights consistently record 116 knots. So we're over 15 knots off. Uh, the PETO system is getting calibrated. Uh, the Garmin G3X does the conversion to task real time. Uh, the engine monitor is not overly helpful because the horsepower calculation is calibrated empirically, but it does show all the CHTs, fuel flow, fuel pressure, et cetera, all good. And I didn't even mention EGTs with Mike on the line. <laughs> so during one show, you indicated that if we can make book map and RPM with a fixed pitch prop, the engine is fine. But my question is, if we can make MAP and RPM with a constant speed prop, is the engine fine or can it appear fine and not be producing the power it should? And then it has to be something else like proper rigging or eccentric bolts or something else. Well, I'll start with the rigging part. Well, maybe the engine part, if, if you have lifters that are not lifting the valves as much as they should, you could be losing some power there. But to the airframe, First question, is everything in knots, or are you sure maybe the book is in miles an hour and you're looking at knots for comparison? Yeah, good question. No, it was knots. Everything's the, knots. The book okay. is in knots and the display is in knots, correct? Okay. I've been through that once before. That's <laughs> very frustrating. That would be about the amount off as well. Yeah. Um, and how did you determine that the flaps were in the full-up position, the wing flaps? You mean it, during the testing? No, no, in your, in your check of the flight control rigging and all that. We did it visually with the AMP actually um, has like a level monitor that put on it and checked no, that. No, that, that's not how great. you do it. So if you're going to, on a Cessna with the Fowler flaps, the flap rollers have to come all the way to the very forward end of the flap rail slots. Very hard to see. I mean, within a gnat's hair. If they touch the end of the slots before the limit switch opens on your flap transmission, the motor binds. So you can't let it do that. But I'm talking a 30 seconds of an inch just before the roller touches the end. That's the full up position. And there's you can't use an inclinometer because the first movement of the flap is just aft. It doesn't go down. So you can have a lot of movement with no change in the angle. 
So be sure that both flaps are full up and you totally ignore the fairing that's riveted to the cabin. That means absolutely nothing because you can change the eccentrics and one wing can be above that fairing and the other wing below the fairing. So for those of you in listening that don't know what we're talking about on the eccentrics, on the strutted wing single engine Cessnas, the after wing attach point bolts are mounted through eccentrics where the bolt holes are offset and the trailing edge of the wings can be offset up or down by almost a quarter of an inch. And that's how we adjust for roll one way or the other. And that can make the flaps look like they're not full up. So Colleen has a, a cantilever wing airplane, so she doesn't get to have those. But she has oh. aileron trim tabs instead. Yeah. But the, the tabs, thing about yeah. the flaps is still the same on yours. So, so, so just measuring that the flaps are um, lined up with the ailerons isn't enough? No, well, on your airplane, the That's trailing edge of the flap should be even with the trailing edge of the aileron. And I'm not talking yeah. about vertically, but horizontally. Yeah, that's how I've always done it. But... Right, on your airplane. But okay. on, on his airplane, it's not the case. Interesting. It'll be very close, but that's not a reference point. Okay. So you you want the flame. Be sure. Well, we're, we're, we're talking about a, a pretty huge speed deficit. So... Yeah. Well, I was going to say a half inch of, of gap there, if the flaps aren't all the way to the rail, is about five knots. So no. it doesn't take much, and I don't know that that's your problem, but, but I know a lot more about the airframe than I know about the engine. So it could be a contributor, yeah, right? I mean, that's yeah. your point, right? It could be yeah. a contributor. The other things on the airplane are not going to deal with speed as much as that on the airframe side. Okay. So, so is there a possibility, though, that when you have a constant speed prop and you're showing correct RPM and you're con showing correct map, and since the governor is actually modulating the pitch of the prop, that it could actually be showing the right RPM and the right map and still not be in the correct position and actually contribute it to being slower? I know that's overthinking, but... No, it's, it's actually not overthinking. It's a good question as to whether with a fixed pitch prop airplane, you do a, a static RPM check and uh, full power. And if the engine is making minimum static rpm then you know it's making full rated power that's probably not uh true on a controllable pitch prop so how do you check that mike well that's a good question paul how do you check it <laughs> <laughs> oh boy this is a hot potato you know it's 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 interesting because the because uh uh 4315 requires that you that mm -hmm. you do a, a static RPM check for as part of every inspection. annual and hundred hour yeah. inspection. But the I guess the question is, is is that meaningful on a constant speed prop airplane? It is a problem. For instance, on the on the 550 engines, the Columbia and the uh, Cirrus, for instance, we have access to the low pitch stop on the propeller. And on a ground run, it's really common for the engines to be 50 RPM short but that's because the low pitch stops are set. So we can adjust the low pitch stops to get the full RPM on the ground. And then the prop governor takes over as you're going down the runway and get airborne. But it seems to me if we're not making power and my 2200 plus hour IO 550, I'm thinking the same thing. I've lost about two or three knots on my airplane in the last uh, 200 hours or so. So when my plane comes in for its annual in two weeks, one of the first things I'm going to do is pull the lifters 
and have a look and see if all my lifters are in good shape. Because my theory is if the lifter is being beaten down, meaning it's shorter, the valves are not opening. So I can still make RPM. I can still make manifold pressure, but I may not be making 310 horsepower. I may be making 290 or something less because the valves are not fully opening. And I don't know if it's all the valves or a few of the valves intake or exhaust, but I'll know by the next time we get together. Kevin, I, that's, uh, that's where I would start. Kevin, I got, I've got a question that might, might help in this troubleshooting process. And that is you're noticing that the cruise speed is deficient. Uh, but, but what about rate of climb? Mm, good question. Because if cruise is, is very deficient, but climbs okay, then it's, it's a drag problem. If climb is deficient, it's, it's, it's a power problem. So if, if we could establish that one way or the other, we, we might have a, a handle yeah. on. That's a good thought. Yeah. yeah, it's a really good question. You know, we're, we're here in Arizona, and so, and at a controlled airport with that giant Bravo over the tops. And this, this aircraft does like to climb a lot of right rudder, but um, we haven't been able to really run that test. That's, that's a great suggestion. We'll run that test and find out, because that at least gives us some indication of, of where it's at. Yeah, and you'll have to do a lot of calculations to meet the, well, but you're an engineer, so it's going to Not a problem. <laughs> yeah, not a problem. No, no. It means you're going to get out the performance charts. You're going to check density altitude. And, and the, you're and the sandbags, right? And then the <laughs> sandbags, right? You got to get it the right weight. So I'm sorry, a little lapse here. I forgot who I was talking to. But I do think that might might help point you in the in the right direction as to whether it's a whether it's a drag problem, some sort of a rigging issue, or or whether it's a, a deficient on power. The only question that I have is, are we reasonably sure that you're recording a correct speed? You're That's relying what I was on the asking G3X. about miles an hour versus knots. No, we have. So we did have uh, the A&P brought, had the company come out with their big machine and hook up to the pedo system and, and check it. And then, of course, we have a G5 and the G3X, and they're both kind of independent. And yeah. they're both measuring within a few knots of each other. Okay, that was... uh, we, When we did our timed runs, as you'd imagine, I ran them both directions just so we could <laughs> null out the okay. any possible and to check the ground speed as well. So that I, I think question. we're okay there, but it's it's worthy of another look. Can, can I go off topic for a second since you brought it up? <sighs> Well, I'm sorry, he's an engineer. I don't have access to this very often. <laughs> so I do, but I don't dare ask it, you know. <laughs> so when you do your time runs, do you just do two directions or do you do four three. directions or three? A triangle. Yeah. You do a triangle or a quad? So generally what I try to do is I, because the G3X will show you the relative wind vector, I'll turn right and make a heading directly into that vector and directly away from it. Okay. So, so I only do two, okay. but I do those. You, nice. you could do more. It would just be a vertical. Com I mean, it would just be a horizontal component of it. Yeah. Though. So I thought that would zero out. Okay. Just curious. No, it sounds like you covered that. Just still a good so, question. You know what's so, been so, Go ahead. so G GPS ground speed is confirming the deficiency in airspeed. Right. And so true airspeed and ground speed are equal and. So you know it's actually that slow. And you actually have to recalculate it because you have to calibrate for temperature as well. As you know, yep. the temperatures yep. are pretty high here. You know, the one, uh, I guess the one lesson I would take for the, your listeners is that when you do a teardown like I did, you just buy the airplane, you don't do performance checks, you just do functional book and all the rest of the test. Then you tear the whole plane apart, you put in new everything, including a new engine monitor. That engine monitor you calculate against itself, right? You, you 
you're supposed you to put X amount of horsepower, a basic yeah. amount of math, and then you say that's 80% horsepower. Mm -hmm. And so from then on, you're like, why am I creating this much horsepower and I'm not getting the airspeed? And that's, it, it may have been smarter for me to try to get more performance data after, you know, right after I bought it before I actually you put made in too everything many else. changes at once. I did. Right? Yeah. I did. Too well, many variables at once. I think I would do the engine setup, ignoring most of what's on your engine monitor use only what Cessna has in the POH and lean it the way Cessna says in the POH, which is not probably the way you typically would lean it and see if that makes a difference. Oh, versus the extreme lean until it's rough. Oh yeah. If you're running lean a peak, then these numbers are probably exactly correct. Yeah. No, we you're, ran it. We we tried it different ones, but I didn't know what the book had used. Well, the the book is the book's going to be based on best power mixture, probably. Yeah, but or you'll some, need to look in the book, the yeah, to see how they leaned it to get that best best power. If you're leaning Richard Peak, the 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 leaning isn't particularly critical because the horsepower curve is very flat on the rich side of Peak, uh, so it, it power doesn't change a lot with mixture. Once you get on the lean side of Peak, power drops off linearly with fuel flow. So. Yeah, it'd make a big difference and it'd be a heavy contributor. Yeah, and everything in the charts on your airplane will be rich of peak. Yeah, okay. Okay, well, Kevin, good luck with that. It sounds like a beautiful plane otherwise, so enjoy the uh, enjoy the trip. It's not the destination, it's the it's the journey, right? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And yours is going to be a little longer, so that's even better. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> a lot more math, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> hey, thank you again, really appreciate it, and thanks again to Ian. I appreciate okay. setting it up. Okay. Yeah. You bet. Take See care. Kevin. Thank you. Our next question is from Greg, who's looking for a creative solution for supply chain problems. How are you doing, Greg? So supply chain issues, as you mentioned, right? Uh, we're all well aware. Paper oil filters, let's call them. Paper oil filters, different sizes, different places are hard to find. A lot of things going on there. So uh, I'm in, I have a... Uh, a uh, 2020 uh, Glass Air Sportsman with an IO375 on it, and um, uh, it's time for an oil change. I did find a paper filter, but uh, I'm looking at some of the options that they have out there, and namely one of them is a, they call it a lifetime filter. It's not quite a lifetime filter. Uh, they say there's some service every five years or so, but uh, basically it's a billet of aluminum they make a cup out of, and then uh, the internals of it are some uh, stainless steel screens that they use. I talked to a few friends that have uh, experience working on business jets and such, and they say, yeah, we use you know stainless steel filters, uh, those kind of things. But uh, do, you, do you have any experience with these? Are they a good thing to use, right? I guess that's the ultimate question. But do you have any experience? It doesn't seem like a bad idea, but what are your thoughts on it is really what I wanted to throw out there for us today. So this is interesting to me. We kind of go a little full circle. We've had trouble with supply chain as well. It's been a big deal. But the, the thought of a reusable filter is interesting because that's what all the engines used to have. Hmm, a screen. <laughs> we had a screen. It was yeah. just a screen. Where the spin-on filter was, we had a screen. Mm -hmm. And uh, all the old Continentals, the Lycomings, um, they all had them and you had to take them off, clean them out, put them back on. And, you know, it wasn't a big deal, but you couldn't spread the filter out for a good inspection. It didn't lend itself very well to that. 
And it was a little extra labor in the process. Now, I haven't seen the one that you're talking about, but if it does the job and the extra labor at annual inspection isn't excessive and you can still inspect what's in the filter, that's the most important thing to me because the, you know, we do oil analysis and then we open filters. And I think there may be quibbles here, but I think opening the filter is probably the number one best thing you can do to know what's going on inside your engine from a wear standpoint. And it's so easy to do. So as long as whatever you put on still lends itself to that really good review, I think it's probably okay. The two downsides of that filter, one is it doesn't filter as well. The perforated metal filter does not filter down to the 20 micron level that a paper filter uh, will. Um, and the second is, is what Paul said, is it's, it's harder to inspect. It's, it's pretty hard to see metal sitting on a metal matrix. You, you really have to rinse the filter off into a coffee filter or something like that to, so that you have a good background to inspect against it. Whereas with a paper filter, you can you can just you know spread it out on a bunch of newspaper and take a good so, look right on the media. So Aircraft Spruce sells these filters sold by Challenger. And at first I thought it was just experimental or for Rotax, but then when I went to the Challenger site, they're selling them as replacements for both TCM and Lycoming style filters, the 110 and the 108 type. Yeah, I think I think they've been STC for a long time, actually. Yeah, and Challenger says they filter to 30 microns, which is what the paper filters, about the same thing. So Challenger seems to think that their filtering ability is just as good they claim it flows better. Um, they claim it cools because it has the cooling fins, which is a really interesting concept. And they claim that when you pull the stainless steel insert out, you can rinse it and collect all the media that's in there, you know, all the dirt. That, and, that's what you have to do. Yeah. Yeah. And they say it's it's simple to inspect. Just you don't have. And actually, frankly, when I cut my filter open and I've got my razor blade and I'm trying to cut that element out, it's kind of like <laughs> a recipe for disaster. It's the thing I hate the most of my whole oil change. Other than when the oil goes all over, which is what happened the last time I did an oil change. But <laughs> besides that, cutting that paper element out is is kind of pain in the butt. So if it is um, rinsable, like they're saying, and you, if you can look at the particles that are in there, I, I'd be all for it. And the price that's shown on Aircraft Spruce is like $345. And I'll tell you, the supply chain issues are real. I finally got some paper filters just this past weekend that I ordered at AirVenture from oh, wow. Spruce. So we're talking three months delay. And I know that you can find filters on eBay for uh, to the tune of $100. So they're going like- they Paper? Like a, yes, yes. A $30 or $35 filter is going on eBay for 100 bucks because they're in such short supply. So where, where are these things made? Taiwan or something? No, it's just people are just desperate to get their hands on one because they've got to do an oil change, you know, and they're not available. And and if you go to Spruce now, they're back ordered again. So I don't know when they'll have them back in again. Very good. Okay. Well, so, thank yeah. you for your time and your, and your uh, answers today. Yeah. Thank you for yeah. bringing it to our attention. Very yeah, great. Thanks for the call. Good to have you on. Have fun with that glass here. Always. <laughs> 
Our next question is from Ken, who's wondering if his friends are pulling his leg. Go ahead, Ken. So my question is, I, I'm a, a new aircraft owner, an experimental airplane, and I've been around aviation for a long time, retired from air traffic control. I've heard bunches of adages, but the other day I heard one that I was not familiar with, that I had not heard, and the question's about weaning. Someone told me that whatever your EGTs are at a thousand feet is a good aiming point for gently weaning in the climb until you get to altitude and then do the big pull to go wean a peak. Oh yeah, that's great. I've well, never heard that before as a, a thousand foot as a guideline. Well, I don't know about the thousand foot part because if you start at 4,000 feet density That's altitude, <laughs> it may be totally different. Good point. But yeah. Let's assume you're starting at sea level. Then you're, if you're at a thousand feet and you maintain that EGT in your climb, you're basically maintaining the same fuel air ratio in the climb, which means you have better power and faster climb and less fuel burn in the process. I've never heard it actually stated like Ken stated, but I, I I've, thought about I've often stated it that way, but not not specifically with a thousand feet, but just basically with a normally aspirated engine maintaining a more or less constant EGT in the climb in order to be in the ballpark. So I've never heard it stated like Ken said, but I thought about it and that's what I've always done when I've been flying. And furthermore, in my airplane, there's a placard that says if you want, um, I think it's uh, called cruise climb or something like that. Uh, it, it basically gives you a fuel schedule on altitude, what your fuel flow should be. And it is pretty much what Ken has said, which is probably why I've always done it. So I think this it's on a your really- cardinal? Yes. That's cool. Yeah. I was unaware. Yeah. So um, I, I think it's a great suggestion. I just wonder why I've never heard it before stated that way. So the bottom line is your leg is not being pulled. <laughs> no, <laughs> no leg pulling. It's all good. No, and you're, you're flying right. So Yeah. I do it on, on my airplane, but I, I get a little more aggressive than that. In the climb, because I often climb to 9,000 feet, and our field elevation is about 400 and I don't specifically wait to a thousand feet. I think the thousand feet is more about um, you're out of the traffic pattern. You're not paying attention to all the other airplanes or you don't have to. So things are a little bit quieter in the cockpit to, if you want to use that. Anyway, in the climb, I'll lean typically 1300 is where my EGTs are at takeoff. But if my CHTs are very low, maybe in the 320 range, then I'll go ahead and lean back to maybe 1350. Give it a minute, see what the CHTs do. If I can lean to 1400 in the climb and maintain the CHTs uh, below say 360 or so, then I get a lot more power, use less fuel and have a much shorter climb. It takes a little effort to keep up with it, but you know, what else are you gonna do in a <laughs> 9,000 foot climb? You may as, well, may as well be doing something. My background on this a little bit is that I belong to a flying club or I fly with friends and I never have to worry about it. Now that I'm an aircraft owner, I can say that the as in an experimental, as the owner, mechanic, database manager, 
purchaser of everything, the, the weight of aircraft <laughs> ownership it. is very heavy. Yeah, purchaser of everything. I love that. <laughs> so to pull on that mixture knob makes me very nervous because that's how I was trained. Don't touch it. Don't touch it. That's why it's painted red. It's the blood from the person before you that <laughs> no, that's, uh, shouldn't that, have touched that, it. I, I actually have a, a, a webinar that's titled Leaning Without Fear because that this is uh, something that I that we see a lot that people are afraid of the red knob. It's an excellent And I have been too, too, especially in the climb. I was just taught full power until you reach at least 5,000 feet. Uh, and now I have instrumentation that has percent power and tells me what CHTs are doing, EGTs, not so worried about, you know, the, the number, you know, whatever the number is. But that's a common misconception. Everybody says, well, I'm climbing at full power, but the truth is you're not. The higher you climb, the richer the mixture, and you're actually losing power. The throttle's all the way forward, but you're losing power as you climb because it's so rich. And to lean it a little bit helps in that climb to get better power. If you can keep out of the detonation areas and keep the CHTs lower. And that is the key, right? The CHTs to mm -hmm. make sure they don't get over 400-ish. Well, I think in a climb, I would want them a little less than that, just because you want to, in my airplane, I could lean to 1450 well, and stay below 400, but then and it, it gets really close to detonation. Kind of depends on what kind of engine he has. He hasn't mentioned it, but if it's a experimental, chances are it has a Lycoming in it. Lycoming engines like to run a little higher CHTs, about 20 degrees higher CHTs than Continentals do. Well, I think... I think we all agree that what you've been doing is, is what we've been doing, and we just tried to add a little bit of logic to why you're doing it, but it sounds reasonable to me. Yeah. Good question. Yeah. I'll keep doing it. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Ken. Appreciate the call. Thanks, guys. I appreciate your show and everything you guys do. Great. Enjoy. Thank you. Bye. Our next question, actually questions, are from Patrick, who is trying to absorb as much knowledge as he can about his engine. Go ahead, Patrick. Hello, everyone. Uh, first, I would like to say thank you for all the knowledge that you guys provide. I have been a huge proponent of Mike's book, oh. and I've read all of them multiple times. And I'm a fan of all three of you, and I do appreciate it, all the work that you guys, as well as my aircraft is in Savvy, and I, I use it all the time. I'm glad you think this is work. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but anyway, to my first of two questions, I fly a 1950 Cessna 170A with a uh, Continental 0300. And uh, my year of flying has been traumatic, but with uh, valve <laughs> issues and lots oh. of test flying. Oh, but God. I came across the E235 type data sheet and a note that said something very interesting that of a maximal permissible head, cylinder head barrel and oil lead temperatures are as follows 525 degrees Fahrenheit, 229 degrees Fahrenheit, and 225 degrees Fahrenheit, respectively. I have said and heard you say multiple times that on a continental, 450 degrees is the hottest that you want to be. And can you explain the logic? that Continental on a small Continental has a higher cylinder head temperature. Well, well, first of all, the, the 
the normal CHT red line on on big bore continentals uh, is 460, not 450. But the 0200, 0300, and the predecessors were A, A and C series engines have have a completely different cylinder design, and and among other things, those cylinders, if I'm not mistaken, do not have a threaded well to put a CHT probe in. So the the only w- way to measure CHT is with a spark plug gasket probe, and the spark plug gasket probes typically will, will run to, you know on the order of 40 degrees hotter than a standard like bayonet type probe that would screw into the threaded well and on the 0200 0300 that that series of engines you don't have a threaded well to screw anything into so that's going to account for at least part of the difference the CHT redline and we we don't like to see cylinders getting anywhere close to CHT redline but the CHT redline I think is primarily uh, determined to protect the head to barrel junction and you know I I, I honestly have not seen a cross section of the of, of the head to barrel junction on the O two hundred O three hundred cylinders. I know that the head to barrel junction on Lycoming cylinders is much more robust and has a much larger contact area, what's called a seal band, than than the big bore Continentals do, and I think that's uh, in large part why the why the Lycoming red lines are typically up around five hundred degrees, and the Continentals are or typically 460, but the 0200, 0300 cylinders are, are a different design. I really haven't uh, had a chance to, to see what the uh, head-to-barrel junction looks like. But, you know, if if the CHT red line is, is that high, then I'm guessing that that head-to-barrel junction is a little bit more robust than it is on the big bore continental cylinders. Thank you. I mean, like, I couldn't, there was no kind of explanation on why there that 525 degrees was in the note. It just says it. Yeah. I think at least, at least part of it is because of the way you measure it is that, that you're measuring it with a spark plug gasket probe and it's, it's going to be considerably hotter, but it's not really an apples to apples comparison. And mounting that spark plug gasket on the bottom spark plug versus the top makes a pretty significant difference as well. Yes, and all of them are on the bottom, and uh, I've been yeah, yeah. the podcast. I've, I've sometimes for months on end through this eight month period of time, I was listening to the podcast on repeat. I would just go <laughs> episode after episode after episode until I cycled through enough of them that I like. I started answering the questions before you got to them. So uh, uh, wow. I was trying to absorb as much as I could. That led to me like. I did end up having to replace the cylinder and I, I fought really hard against a shop trying to replace two cylinders. And I mm-hmm. uh, found a new shop, which ended up saving one of them. And, Good. Um, and I had to replace the other one, but that led to a breaking of the cylinder, which means I started over again in all, all of the episodes, which led to some guidance that I found online. And uh, as a, a working pilot, through uh, as I was a CFI and now I'm an airline pilot for SkyWest, I had guidance on a breaking an engine of rotating the power settings between 65% power and 75% power. And I know that 
through your episodes and through Mike's books that first principles, you want to put as much pressure as you want in those cylinders to get them to uh, hone out a little bit, not glaze, but take off the mountaintops a little bit. <laughs> and um, so can you explain, that would be my second question. Can you explain the logic of alternating power settings? Uh, I was told that when I broke in. I, I've never, so I've never not just you. seen any logic to it at all. And I know uh, that, that frequently the manufacturers recommend doing that. It, it's never made any sense to me. My approach to break in has always been run the engine as hard as you can without overtemping the cylinders and, and it gets the job done as quickly as possible. Which, by the way, is a lot of fun. But yeah. Yeah. that's beside the point. And I've also I've also rescued a number of engines that 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 were oil burners by just going out and and typically out over the Pacific Ocean a little bit and flying pretty much on the deck at at at, at wide open throttle to complete the break in <laughs> process because it wasn't done right and you just want to run it as hard as you can. So I was always told that if you left the power setting at the same place that it would. The, the piston would always come up to the same place and it would form a ridge in the cylinder, which I found super hard to believe. Because well, the, the piston, RPM the makes piston, the piston. <laughs> the piston always comes up to the I same know. place. It doesn't so matter. That's, but that's why you had to vary it so you that's, didn't mark your cylinder. Oh, that's now, hilarious. Now, uh, you know, break in, it's doing weird stuff. It's shaving off those mountaintops. But uh, I, I, I don't think I believe that. But I did find on the Miata forum online, these car guys... <laughs> saying that a ridge will form on the cylinder where the piston still comes up to top dead center with the compression ring. If you don't change the RPMs, you're going to get that ridge. But it also said that um, with metallurgy the way it is nowadays, that's probably something we used to do in the old days, but it has nothing to do with engines today. So, Well, you, you do get that ridge, and it has nothing to do with whether you vary RPM. Well, um, they yeah. said varying the RPM will stretch the connecting rods. So oh, <laughs> I'm like, wow, that sounds what, exciting. What wow. baloney. That's complete baloney. It's car people talking, I guess. Man. But they're, you know, yeah, but they're running they're, at 9,000 RPM. A cylinder yeah. that's been in service for a while always has, has a... Uh, maximum wear up at what's called a ring step area, which is the point of direction reversal of the of the top compression ring, number one compression ring. And it's simply because the, when the piston is moving up and down, those rings are hydroplaning on a on a film of oil. But when the piston comes to a stop and reverses direction, uh, you you lose the hydrodynamic lubrication, and uh, it's kind of like a water skier if the boat decides to to, to make a one eighty. <laughs> uh, you know the water skier is going to sink until until the rope tightens up again and starts pulling him. And uh, so that we, in in that situation, you you're relying completely on what's called boundary lubrication, which is a chemical additives in the in the oil that are designed to to minimize the forming of micro welds but you do are getting metal to metal contact while a piston is moving you you, you typically are not getting any metal to metal contact because the rings are hydroplaning on a film of oil all right well yeah thanks for calling in we really appreciate the question thank you for your yeah. time and i really do appreciate your work and uh, i look forward to more books mike <laughs> oh no <laughs> <laughs> Not oh, another one. <laughs> Got our work cut out for <laughs> us. Yeah, they're good. <laughs> okay, take care. Thanks, Patrick. Thank you. 
Our next question is from Miko, who I think might want us to play librarian. Go ahead, Miko. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Well, first of all, I want to say how much I appreciate everything you've done for general aviation owners and mechanics. You have provided more education than probably 18 years of ANP experience <laughs> has. So I, I really appreciate it. It's real world experience and it's awesome. So just a quick background. I have uh, 18 years of naval aviation maintenance experience. And because of that, I'm used to having a library full of books. Uh, I'm used to having documentation to do to how, how to do just about everything, every component, installation, removal, etc. Uh, I've had my uh, general aviation or, or civilian AMP for about two years now, and, and I found that books are not as easy to come by. I own two airplanes and uh, Lycoming, Continental, Rag and Tube, Aluminum. And whenever I go to do something, the first thing I want to reach for is the book. And I, I find that getting books is, is difficult at best. I can possibly download manuals from the Internet, from some shady tree uh, website that might have been scanned with a potato. <laughs> scanned with a potato. I'm going to have to I'm going to have to Google that. Potato scan, you know. <laughs> right. I, you know, I reached out to uh, uh, Continental to get uh, the C-145 manual, and I was asked to write down my credit card on a piece of paper and email it to them, which sounds A, unsafe, B, archaic, and I'm not even sure that the people I reached out to was actually Continental themselves. So what is your advice on getting legitimate, approved technical data to work on aircraft? Well, definitely going to the manufacturer is going to be, I think, the best way. There are some other sources uh, that shops will use. Uh, we were talking about it earlier. Sometimes uh, uh, I use ATP for my airworthiness directive research, and they also supply tech data. And you can sometimes buy one engine or one airframe at a time, but typically they prefer to sell you a subscription. Yeah, they're hideously expensive. Yeah, yeah that's it's not horribly an expensive. Yeah. You can sometimes buy a, a one-off from Textron for a Cessna aircraft. They'll send you a printed copy. Of course, it's a now it's a it's a stagnant item, so you don't get revisions and all that. Uh, Continental Aero. If you're looking for Continental information, it's Continental Aero. That's the correct official site. And you can purchase from them as well. I don't know that you can purchase one manual. I've never actually tried that. But you can call them. They have a phone number. You can call. Use the numbers that are on the website and see what you can get directly from them. You can also find, once in a while, you'll find a shop that has finally decided that they're not going to use paper manuals anymore and they're just offloading all their manuals. We have, actually, you can kind of see it behind me there, way off through the window of my office, there's shelves. And we have Continental and Lycoming engine manuals that we probably haven't opened in 10 years. But for some reason, we, we're not hoarders, I promise, but we, it's just really hard to let go of those things. Every now and then you know that that new manual doesn't have the part number of that old part, and surely it's in that old manual, and it probably is most of the time. Yeah, Miko, your your the your email to us said that that you found some cheap manuals at at, at a site called continentalengines.com. So I went and looked <laughs> at it. And continentalengines.com is an engine distributor that distributes industrial 
uh, and diesel engines has does not have anything to do with aviation. It does not have anything to do with Continental Motors. Yeah, don't go there. Um, so if you, if you buy manuals for, for from them, it will be for the wrong stuff, unless you you know have a diesel generator or something like that <laughs> that you need a manual for. For uh, for years, for my uh, Cardinal, my one seventy seven Cessna. I was using PDF copies of manuals that were, I think they were provided by McCurtain Technology. Yes, McCurtain, yep. And uh, and it was great because I could just sit at my desk and look something up, you know, on the computer. Of course, that's a stagnant copy, so it's not updated as the manuals are updated. But then again, how often yeah. is the Cessna manual yeah, airframe I'm, updated? I've, I've got some manuals for, for my Cessna 310 from McCurtain, both the uh, illustrated parts catalog and and the maintenance manual and it's unfortunately the, the 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 last one that they had was for the 1975 model which is different than my 1979 by a little bit but the manuals are, are still quite useful and they're for the most part they're close enough and i, I also have a paper manual that for, for the 1979 but like paul said i hardly ever look at it because it's just so much more convenient to Look at the, look at the stuff on your on your laptop, and the McCurtain. Uh, I've been trying to find them because in my classes, I you know I give a list of places to go for Cessna specific manuals. Do they still and exist? They I have been trying to find them online, and I don't think they exist. But they did manuals all the way up through seventy five because seventy six is where Cessna began to copyright their manuals. Prior to that, they were not copyrighted. Oh, okay. And, so, and not only did they copyright them, but they started enforcing the copyright. They, oh, they really? basically said, if you if you distribute any of our manuals from '76 on, we're going to sue you. So, which hmm. I didn't I didn't think was so cool. But, but what about a 170 Type Club? Would there that be a resource for finding somebody that could help you? Maybe I don't. I assume there is a Type yeah. Club. Paul, oh. what was it? What was that other? There was a there was another company that. The, the S scanned S Esco. Esco, Esco, yeah, yeah, they may yeah, still be around. I don't know, I I don't know if they still exist or not, but and, and they used to. Yeah, take a look for E S S C O, and they were legitimate. They would scan old non copyrighted manuals into PDF format. I haven't looked for them in a while. It's amazing. I, I wouldn't have thought of the name if Mike hadn't started it. Um, we actually bought quite a few manuals from them. You know, thirty yeah, years pa ago. actually paper manuals. Yeah, back in the I day. think I have the paper manuals that I have like two big volumes for for my old four hundred B autopilot that I've been keeping alive. <laughs> uh, I think I got from Esco. Yep. And you know, if you get really desperate, you could come over to Miramar College where we've got microfiche copies of all of these things, and I'm sure you could <laughs> oh. do your research there. I don't even know why we keep a microfiche machine hey. around. How do you transfer microfiche to your iPhone? That's the question. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure, you know, sharper image makes sense. But, you know, I mean, the old manuals are probably fine for the airframe issues. If you were going to overhaul your engine, you're going to want all the up-to-date service letters and bulletins and stuff like that. And so that's when um, you have to, you know, do your research and try to gather these things and maybe subscribe for for getting that more recent information. Contact contact Continental about that engine though. They they may have some sort of service that you as an individual can get for that one engine. That may 
that may be something they'll do. They're a whole different company <laughs> than they used to be. Yeah. And then Lycoming, we were discussing before you came on, Lycoming is a lot nicer about sharing their approved data, which makes sense to me. I mean, that would be in their best interest, I guess. So their site has a good knowledge library. I think you've probably visited to check it out. Yeah, I, I've always been been puzzled about why the what why some of these companies make tech data a profit center. You'd think, in the interest of safety, they would want to make that stuff as widely available as possible. But yeah, it seems odd to me that Cessna decided to let everybody have everything except the service manual. All the bullet. I mean, and that was a well, huge Cessna, step. Cessna used to be the worst. I mean, you, you, they, they wouldn't, they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't let you get service bulletins without paying for them, which I thought yeah. was absolutely absurd. But they changed that. But maybe in the last but ten years, they've changed that now. I think yeah. when when Beach and Cessna got combined into Textron Aviation, they changed their philosophy a little bit. Yeah, good question, Miko. Yeah, yeah. I hope that helped. Don't go to continentalengines.com. That's just yeah. Don't go. That that, that won't get you anything useful. Okay. <laughs> I won't, and I won't give them my credit card information. Yeah, don't, email. <laughs> don't write it down on a piece of paper and take a picture of it. That sounds sounds that. like a phishing site to me. That's right. And, and and for the Panzel, you're probably on your own. I don't think we know where to find a Panzel manual. Yeah, I don't even one. know what that is. Well, that has an IO540 in it. Yes, it's experimental. Yes, it has the 10 to 1 pistons, but by and large, it's a, it's a light combing engine. Mm hmm. That's the engine that I have on my Lance Air. We need to talk. Yeah, it's just a, a tiny little airplane strapped to a really big light combing engine. Yeah, that's exactly that's, what you want for aerobatics. That sounds exactly <laughs> like what everybody wants in, for everything. Hovers in ground effect, right? Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Okay. Well, cool. Yeah, thanks thank for you, the call, thank Miko. Thank you so much, and keep up the fantastic work. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thanks. Well, that's a wrap. What did we get right? And more importantly, what did we get wrong? We would love to hear from you. Keep sending us those tricky questions and try to stump us. You can send the questions and comments to podcasts at aopa.org. See ya. Bye-bye, everybody. <laughs>